Okay, welcome back to Church History for Dummies. It's been a month and a half or so. It was good for me to have a break. I didn't do as much research as I anticipated um, for the next classes. I did, I did a little bit, but not as much as I thought I would be. But uh, let's pray as we start. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you uh, raised up men and women throughout church history to address uh, certain errors and heresies when people uh, were not accurately interpreting your word and that you raised up people to help uh, correct them or at least in some cases excommunicate them, but you protected the truth of your word and you protected your church from being infiltrated with false teaching. And so we still need your spirit to do this today. So help us collectively as a class and a church uh, to look back throughout church history and learn and help us, Lord, to uh, continue making disciples and standing up for the truth of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we now enter the beginning of the 4th century, and tonight we're still going to rewind a little bit to the 3rd century. But at the beginning of the 4th century, things are pretty stable as far as the church is concerned. Martyrdom, which we saw a lot of, and persecution is a thing of the past. The church is not experiencing as much as that as they were before. The emperor Constantine is a self-proclaimed Christian. Whether or not he was, who knows? Some people say yes, some people say no, it wasn't genuine. I don't know, the Lord knows. But Constantine was at least sympathetic to the gospel and to the church. So there's no heat, there's no pressure coming down from the government like there was in the first couple of centuries. Outside the church, things have cooled off now. Martyrdom, persecution is now a thing of the past. But there's a problem within the church now. There are people who call themselves believers, they call themselves Christians, but they are confessing. Something different than what the church has proclaimed for the first few centuries. And so in the fourth century, the main issue facing the church now is this. How are we to understand the relationship between God the Father and his son, Jesus? What is the relationship between the Father and the Son? Is the Son created by the Father? Is Jesus eternal or did he have a beginning point in time? Is the son's essence, his nature, is it the same as the father? And so now moving into the fourth century, we're having doctrinal issues within the church. People's understanding of God. Um, People are struggling to reconcile the idea of a single God as stated in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They're struggling to reconcile that passage with the ending of Matthew's gospel, which says in Matthew 28, 19, Go go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they're struggling with how is God one, and yet we're called to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so some Christians really struggled with this, struggled to understand and reconcile these two verses. One person who we already looked at was the heretic of Marcion. And his answer was simple. Marcion just said, do away with the Old Testament. No problem, right? Problem solved. Get rid of Deuteronomy 6. And there's no problem about God being one and yet three persons. Another one of the answers to all of these questions, particularly the question, how do we reconcile one God with the three names, comes to us by heresy known as modalism. It's on your notes there. It's also known by fancier names on your notes. I wrote them out for you so that I don't have to write them on the board and so that you don't have to end up writing them. Fancier names like modalistic monarchianism, patripassianism, Sabellianism and Praxianism. There's a, I think there's a pen right there, Heather, on that wall right there. So we have these fancier names other than modalism. We have modalistic monarchianism, patrapassianism, Sabellianism, Praxianism. Now, why all of these extra names? Well, we know all these extra names because it 
makes theologians and pastors sleep better at night because we know all the names of modalism. (laughs) Right? Let's define modalism. Modalism teaches that the Father is fully God, and the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. Nevertheless, God only manifests himself in one such mode at a time. God is only one of these modes or manifestations at a time. He's not three persons. In, in, in the view of modalism, God is kind of like Mrs. Doubtfire. Do you remember the movie Mrs. Doubtfire with Robin Williams? Or he's getting a divorce from his wife and he wants to spend time with his kids. And so he applies to be the nanny for his own kids and he dresses up as the old woman. Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, he's always changing back and forth between Mrs. Doubtfire and himself, and he gets himself in these situations where he's having to run around. That's really the God of modalism, is that God is always becoming the Father or the Son or the Spirit, whatever the situation calls for. Kind of like in Matthew 3. In Matthew 3, in Jesus' baptism. Now think about modalism. Think about being a modalist and having this understanding of God, and then what happens at Jesus' baptism in Matthew three thirteen. Let me read it. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So if you're a modalist, you have God jumping around all over the place. He's in the water. He's getting baptized. He comes up out of the water. Suddenly he's in the air and he's descending like a dove. And then suddenly he's back up into heaven and he's speaking as the Father. That's the God of modalism. He is not simultaneously Father, Son, and Spirit. Sometimes he's the Father. Sometimes the Son. Sometimes the Spirit. Never existing as three persons sharing the exact same nature or essence. He's always in one mode. Now, sometimes you'll see it called modalistic monarchianism because it stresses the one rule of God, like a monarch, a king, or a queen who rules over their kingdom. The idea is that God is one. It's all that that he is, and he's ruling over this world. Sometimes you'll see it called patropassianism because those who hold it believe that God the Father suffered on the cross uh, in Latin, pater, uh, means father and passion there just means uh, Jesus' death or suffering like the movie The Passion of the Christ the suffering or death of the Christ so patripassianism from pater and passion there mean that God the Father is the one who suffered on the cross as the person Jesus you also see it known as Sabellianism uh, from a man named Sibelius. Sibelius had this view. We don't know much about Sibelius. He was a priest and he was a theologian. He was excommunicated around 217 to 220 AD for his false beliefs concerning God. Sibelius taught party line modalism. There's one God, sometimes he wears the mask of the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes the Spirit, depending on the situation, just like Mrs. Doubtfire. Well, Hippolytus was one of the apologists that we looked at a long time ago. He was an early opponent of Sibelius. He tells us that Sibelius divided God up into these three roles or manifestations, and he used the analogy of the Son to describe God, listen, you run into all kinds of problems anytime you try to look at anything in nature and say God is like that. Because we can't point to anything in nature and say God is like that, can we? Now, we might use metaphors like the Psalms do. God is a mother hen, brings us under the the care of his wings. But that's a metaphor. But There is nothing in nature that itself in its own essence is like God. And so Sibelius, right off the bat, is wrong because he's looking at the sun and saying, that's what God is like. The sun gives off light and heat, Sibelius said, even though it's one source. 
There's the sun, and it does two things. It gives off light and heat. So Sibelius looked at the sun and said, that's what God is like. Sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit. And in Sibelius' view, he would say, in the Old Testament is where we see God the Father. In the Gospels is where we see Jesus. And now in the lives of believers, we now see God acting as the Spirit. And where did Sibelius get his ideas? From the Bible. Okay? Every heretic is getting their views from the Bible. It's a reminder that you can make the Bible sing any song that you want to. You really can. For instance, in John 14, here's what, here's what Sibelius would have said. When Philip goes to Jesus in John 14, verses 8 and 9, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Sibelius would have read John 14 and said, See right there. If you've seen Jesus, then you've seen the Father. Same God, same essence, same nature, just a different manifestation or a different mode of the one God. And so Sibelius is using the Bible to come up with his false idea of God. And so we go through the second and the third centuries and we have strains of modalism popping up. Another man who helped promote this idea was uh, Praxius. Praxianism is another way you'll see it. Uh, here's Praxius. How do you spell his name? I guess I should give you Sibelius too. So Praxius... Uh, we rewind to the end of the second century, coming into the third century, and Praxius comes on the scene. We don't know much about him. We only know what we know about him. We know from other people's writings about him. He was very popular and very influential in the Church of Rome. And Tertullian, if you remember him, we looked at a long time ago. Tertullian campaigned against Praxius in his book titled "Against Praxius." What's your book about Tertullian? I'm against Praxius. Here's what Tertullian said about Praxius. He said, In various ways has the devil rivaled and resisted the truth. Sometimes his aim has been to destroy the truth by defending it. Praxius maintains that there is one only Lord, the almighty creator of the world. In order out of this doctrine of the unity, he may fabricate a heresy. He says that the Father himself came down into the Virgin, was himself born of her, himself suffered, indeed was himself Jesus Christ. By this, Praxius did a twofold service for the devil at Rome. He drove away prophecy or preaching, and he brought in heresy. He put to flight the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, and he crucified the Father. Paraclete is the Greek word that Jesus says in John 14, right after the passage in Philip. I'm going to send another comforter. That's the, the Greek word paraclete. And he's saying, Praxius put the Holy Spirit to flight and he crucified the Father. Meaning he's saying, we don't need the Holy Spirit. Okay? We, and we're going to crucify the Father. The Father is the one who died for us. So Praxius was a modalist who believed that God the Father became the Son of God as the incarnate word, and then entered the Virgin Mary, was born, lived, and suffered a brutal death on the cross. And it was God the Father who did all of this as the Son of God. Uh, Praxis believed in the oneness of God, but only the oneness of God. All right, so what does Tertullian mean when he says, in many ways has the devil rivaled truth? Sometimes his aim has been to destroy it by defending it. What does Tertullian mean that you can destroy the truth by defending it? He means that you can be an enemy of the truth if you only seek to defend one aspect of the truth. If the truth is A and B and you only stress A, you're not defending the truth, you're destroying the truth. So Praxius says, I'm just going to defend the truth that there's one God. He didn't open the door for a Trinitarian understanding of God. Tertullian says about Praxis, he says he maintains that there is only one Lord, the almighty creator of the world, in order that out of this doctrine of the unity he may fabricate a heresy. So Praxius was all for monotheism, that there is one God, one Lord. He believes this is central to Christianity. He's not in favor of a triune understanding of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
And so what Tertullian tells us is that Praxius's belief in monotheism, one God, can lead to a heretical belief because if all you do is stress the oneness of God to the exclusion of the unity of God, the triune God, then you're not really telling the truth. If all you do is stress the oneness of God, you're talking about some God, but you're not talking about the Christian God. If all you do is stress God's oneness, then you're no different from Praxius or Sibelius or a Jew or a Muslim. That's what Judaism and Islam stress, right? One God. However, Christianity is distinctively Trinitarian. He's not just a God of unity. He's a triune God. And so if all that you are is a strict monotheist, then you believe in something, but you do not believe in the God of the Bible. And I think many people still today hold to this. Just practically, most people talk about God, right? The man upstairs. It's kind of this broad idea of one God, not breaking it down and understanding that God is not just one. He's also three. All right, back to what Tertullian said. He says that the father himself came down into the virgin, was himself born of her, himself suffered, indeed was himself Jesus Christ. So Tertullian is telling us that Praxius believed that the father became Jesus Christ in the flesh. The father was born in Bethlehem. The father as Jesus as a young boy played on a t-ball team. The father as Jesus was in Boy Scouts. It was the father as Jesus who died on the cross, which is where you get this patripassianism. So you can already smell the error, right? One God, one person in the Godhead, the Father, who's only manifesting himself as one of these three at any given time. He's not seeing them all uh, existing, coexisting eternally with one another. So that's Praxius' view of God. Now, what God does this sound like? The one God, all alone, nobody with him. Sounds like Allah. The God of Muslims. Allah, the God of Muslims, is, is alone. He's exclusive all by himself. And Allah then has to create in order to be himself, in order to love. But the triune God of Christianity, Father, Son, and Spirit, did not need to create because God was complete in himself. See, God has no needs in eternity past. However far back your brain can take you in going back into eternity past, before God created angels, before God created anything, you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They don't need to create anything or anyone to be themselves, to be, for God to be himself. God has no needs in eternity past. He's complete within himself. And it's this God who is complete in himself, having no need. It's this God who then decides to create the world. So God did not create out of any need. And so the question is, why did God create? If he has no need, why did God create? The answer, God created out of his triune love in order to share that love with others in contrast to the God of Islam. And so this is what we lose at, at its core. This is what we lose if we embrace modalism, if we embrace what Sibelius and Praxius were teaching. We lose the eternal inner Trinitarian love that existed in eternity past between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The triune God creates out of the overflow of his eternal love. And we were made to get caught up in that love and to then enjoy God and then go share that love with others. We're made to get swept up in the love that exists already in eternity past between God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And this is why God created humanity so that we can enjoy him and glorify him forever. But this poses a few questions. Because the triune God is a loving, giving, and sharing God, did he need to create in order to be loving and giving and sharing? No. Did he have to create in order to experience love? No. Did God only become loving after he created? The answer to all these is an emphatic no. God did not need to create in order to love. God had been loving for all of eternity. The Father has been loving his Son in the Spirit for all eternity. Did I see a hand? Yes, you are. 
He is love. So rather than him losing love, he is love himself, right? He is love. We'll talk about that more. And again, that's his nature, his essence, who he is. As John says, God is love. Well, we're going to talk about more of that in a minute and understand who he is because I think sometimes we have a different understanding of who God is. Even as Christians, we might not buy into modalism, but we have a different understanding of who God is in his nature. And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, So loving, because God is love, loving others is not strange for God. God didn't start loving people in Genesis 1. He's been loving for all of eternity. And this is what... Sibelius and Praxius are willing to give up. They're willing to die on the hill of the oneness of God to the exclusion of God being Trinity. So, standing in stark contrast to the triune God of Christianity, we have Allah, the exclusive and all-alone God of Islam. And Allah, or Allah, is said to have 99 names or titles which describe Him as He is, in eternity. And one of those names that's given to Allah is the loving. That's one of his 99 names that he's supposed to be in all of eternity. He's called the loving. Now think about where we're going with this. One of his names is the loving. But how could Allah be loving in eternity past? Because before he created anything, according to Islam, Allah was all alone. He's all alone. So how could he love? There's no one to love. He's all by himself. He could only love if he created something to love. That means Allah is dependent on his own creation in order to be who he is in his own nature. But Allah cannot be loving unless he has someone to love. So he has to create in order to be who he is. He has to create in order to live up to this name. Therefore, he's dependent on his own creation in order to be who he is. And one of the cardinal truths of Islam is that Allah is dependent on nothing and no one. But he is dependent, isn't he? Contrary to what Islam teaches, Allah, if he's real... It's not. But Allah, in their thinking, contrary to what Islam teaches, Allah is dependent on created beings. He needs creation in order to be who he claims to be. He needs creation in order to love and to live up to one of his own names, the loving. And so Michael Reeves says this, Therein lies the problem. How can a solitary God be eternally and essentially loving when love involves loving another? Such are the problems with non-triune gods in creation. Single-person gods, having spent eternity alone, are inevitably self-centered beings, and so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be a frustrating distraction for the God whose greatest pleasure is looking in a mirror? Creating just looks like a deeply unnatural thing for such a God to do. And if such gods do create, they always seem to do, out, do so out of an essential neediness or desire to use what they create merely for their own self-gratification. This is not the God of the Christian faith. We believe in a triune God. We are Trinitarian. We believe in one God eternally existing in three persons Father, Son, and Spirit. And so it is not unnatural for the Trinity to love. It's normal. Loving others is not some new or novel thing that happened with God when he created Adam and Eve. God has always been loving. Always been loving his Son in the Spirit for all of eternity. And that's why the God that we serve is not first seen as creator. God has first and foremost revealed himself not as creator, not as ruler of the universe. He has first and foremost revealed himself as father. Think about the difference between these two, between father or creator, and what each one of them uh, reveal. God has first and foremost revealed himself as 
a loving heavenly father who has a son that he has loved for all of eternity, Jesus. And Jesus being the son means that he has a father whom he loves. And this is exactly what you lose with Praxius and Sibelius's view of God. And so in eternity past, Jesus, the word, was enjoying close and deep fellowship with God the Father, but not so with Allah. Allah was alone. According to Islam, all that Allah had at his side was what? The Quran, the book of Quran. That's it. It's him and his book. According to Islam, Allah had an eternal word at his side, the Quran. Now, on the surface, it looks like Allah is not lonely because he's got a book, right? But that's all it was. It was a book, a book about him, just a book about his wants and his wishes. There was no one for Allah to love, just a book. Now, I know all you introverts like me who love to read are thinking, that would be heaven, (laughs) all alone with a book. Me all alone, no one to bother me, no one to talk to, and all I have with me is a book. A book to read and enjoy all by myself. Glory, glory. And all the introverts said, Amen. (laughs) That was Allah in eternity past, living the dream of every introvert who loves to read. But when you read Hebrews 1.3, and you read the phrase that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. You see a picture of the Christian God who was not alone in eternity past. You see a Trinitarian God who reveals himself not just through a book with mere pages, but through his word, through the word, the word incarnate, his son Jesus. And so in Christianity, the Bible is not just a book, is it? The word is not just a book with ink and pages and chapters and footnotes and a preface and and study notes. The word is a person, right? Jesus, who has always been in God's presence. And so when God gives us his word, he doesn't just give us a book. He actually gives us himself. He gives us Jesus. He doesn't give us information and rules and interesting tidbits about himself or what his idiosyncrasies are. He gives us Jesus himself. So as 1 John 4, 16 says, God is love. Love is God's essence. And so that means that the triune God that we serve is in his essence, not a lawgiver, but a lover. Think about that. God in his essence is not first a lawgiver. He's a lover, a person who loves, not one who gives laws for people to obey. Think about that. That'll change your understanding of who God is. God is fundamentally love. I know that makes us uncomfortable to talk about God being love in his essence because we're afraid of what? If we stress God's love too much, then we're on the fast track to liberalism and the social gospel. We're afraid if we stress God's love too much, then obedience goes out the window. No one's going to want to obey anymore. Everyone's going to do whatever they want to do. I've never met a Christian who said, oh, there's grace? Oh, I'm free to sin then. I've never met anyone like that. I meet Christians who say, I'm forgiven. I want to obey him. I don't want to go sin. You mean I'm forgiven and clean? I don't want to go sin. I want to honor him. It makes some Christians uneasy to talk about God being love in his very essence because we're afraid we're going to get a mushy gospel, right? And so I think our default mode is to think of God as this supreme ruler who's hard as nails. Like his default mode is to be cranky because nobody's keeping the rules. And so we envision this eternal curmudgeon who only cares about the rules. Like before anything else, he has to be a cranky, harsh taskmaster. But God is not first and fundamentally a lawgiver. He is first a lover because before God gave the law to anyone, what was he doing? He was loving. I mean, when it's just God the Father and the Son and the Spirit in eternity past, he's loving. He's not barking out rules and laws, is he? He was the Father loving his Son Jesus through the Spirit. So before there was anything to rule, before God created these 
you know, those uh, weird angels in Isaiah with the wings and the eyes all over that just fly around and say, holy, holy. Before he created them, he's certainly ruling them once he created them. But what was God doing before he even created those things? He was loving, loving his son Jesus through the Spirit. Before there were any rules to pass out, God was loving his son. So love came before the law. Even though the law, the moral law summed up in the Ten Commandments, even though that is an expression of his moral character, it is. It tells us about God, who he is, what he's like, what he demands and expects of us. But love came before the law. Even though the law is an expression of his moral character, we still value God's law, don't we? But before he created and ruled, he was not a lawgiver. He was a lover. And so he communicates to us through the word. He speaks and Jesus fulfills this uh, and executes his office as prophet through the spoken word. God reveals himself because he's loving and he wants us to get caught up in that. He shares. He does not hoard. This is what you lose with modalism and praxis. You lose this God who is communicative and reveals himself and shares. You lose this God. Instead, you have a God who hoards. But in Christianity, Jesus does not hoard. He moves out to others and communicates. So the triune God of Christianity is really the ultimate extrovert, isn't he? He is most alive, if you will, in community, loving and sharing and giving. And God has been in community within the Godhead for all of eternity, contrary to the God of Islam, contrary to the God of modalism. And as the greatest extrovert, God could not be a recluse. He must enjoy closeness with others. He must love because he is love. He must speak. He must communicate. And he speaks and gives us himself through his word. And so Jesus shows us what the Father is like as the radiance of the glory of God, revealing God to us, revealing that God is uh, not an introvert. And that's why we must first see God as a loving Father and not as a lawgiver or rule enforcer. John Owen said, we are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. You will never be nearer to Jesus than when you are just absolutely flabbergasted that he loves you, a rebellious sinner like you. You'll never be nearer to Jesus than when you find yourself totally awestruck that he loves you. And then guess what? When you become overwhelmed with that, you want to live for him, don't you? You want to obey his laws. You want to obey his commands. You desire him. He becomes your treasure, your exceeding joy. And then when you come to grips with his crazy, eternal, out-of-this-world love for you, you'll actually start enjoying him. How about that? Enjoying God. I did not grow up hearing people talk about, you were made to enjoy God. I grew up hearing about the God who said, you know, he's in a really bad mood because you're always disobeying. That was my image of God. I thought, sometimes he's in a good mood, and if you catch him just right, he'll love on you. But most of the times he's cranky because he's this creator and this rule giver, and nobody's keeping the rules, and he's just really ticked off about that. That was kind of the image I had of God. Sometimes he loves, it's like, he loves me. God had a flower, you know, I had a flower saying, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. I had no framework in my mind and in my theology that I was made and created to glorify and enjoy God. And this is what you lose with modalism. It's what you lose with what Praxius was saying and Sibelius. Under their theology, there's no Trinitarian God loving in eternity past and then creating human beings to share that love with and to get caught up with that love. All of that goes out the window with modalistic monarchianism, patropassianism, Sabellianism, and Praxianism. The eternal love of God is gone. Just like poof. Greg? Yeah, I was just kind of curious. Uh, did... Did the uh, Muslims or the, you know, um, Islam, you know, did they get their ideas from this period of time, uh, maybe in the uh, modern monarchism? I want to say it was in the 
fourth century. Does somebody know off the top of their head? Six hundreds. Okay, maybe six hundreds. Yeah, yeah. But it's all coming out of this area. Like we'll look next week at at Arius in Alexandria, Egypt. It's all coming out. So these ideas are still floating around. Obviously, they keep cropping up. We'll talk about it when we get to the end. Modalism is still alive and well today. So these things never go away. So it has been since the beginning. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to, really, it goes back to, uh, well, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? Did God really say, hmm, I'm going to repaint God and who I want him to be or who I think him to be. He's this cranky curmudgeon who doesn't want me to even touch that tree. How dare him? That's what they did, right? Adam and Eve, instead of, oh my goodness, look at all this stuff he's given us. All this stuff. Go over the hill. There's trees over there. Go 10 miles that way. There's fruit over there on trees that we can eat. But he won't even let me touch that tree. Who does he think he is? And they grab it. So it really goes back to Genesis 3. And you see it repeated throughout Israel's history. What? God appears to them at Sinai. Thunder, lightning, smoke, fire. Everybody's scared to death. They're like, Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want to hear his voice because if we hear him speak, we're going to die. So Moses goes up for 40 days and comes down. What have they done? Already created the golden calf, right? Which means they had to chop down trees and they would make a wooden calf. And then they'd go around and gather all the gold that they could find. You remember the Egyptians gave all their gold jewelry to the Israelites as they left. They're gathering all that gold jewelry, melting it down, covering that wood cow, and saying, this is Yahweh who brought us out of Egypt. Why? Because Moses was gone 40 days and we don't know what happened to him. And so right then and there, they're changing their ideas of God. And so Moses comes down, and what happens? And Aaron's like, I don't know. We threw the gold in the fire, and out popped this cow. And that's what he says. He's passing the buck. See, it's been, our, it's been our problem, which is why Paul then says in Ephesians, prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to know who God is. It's why we need to be in his word and in church and looking at church history so that we can stay within the correct orthodox parameters so that we don't veer off and say, we're seeing it in culture today, right? With marriage and gender and people, I know Christians are saying, but I just, I know the Bible says that, but man, what I feel, I feel God's just loving and he's just, it's okay, he's okay with us living any way we want to, believing whatever we want to believe about marriage and gender. It's, it's been a problem since Genesis chapter 3 of repicturing and repainting God in our own understanding instead of looking at his word and saying, how has he revealed himself to be? And I would say that's where Sibelius and Praxius and everyone throughout church history who veered off, they veered away from God's word and they weren't interpreting it in community. Yeah, what I'm thinking about is that we rebelled against God. It's a rebellion out now and then we made our own selves God. We had the golden calf. <clears throat> yeah. But we ourselves made ourselves God when we, yeah. Not we, you know. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're worshiping ourselves, right? Yes. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we want what we want, and that's really, we're just worshiping ourselves. Greg, I thought, oh, Barb. Um, I agree with what everything you said, okay? But where I find it difficult, because this whole Trinity thing, is, is so difficult to, to even try to, you know, wrap your mind around. When I'm teaching, you know, a lot of us, okay, and a kid will say, you know, Father instead of Jesus, or, you know, Jesus is, you know, it, it's every single time it stumps me because mm-hmm. how do I communicate to a five, six, seven-year-old that they're the same, but they're different. Yeah. You, you do it the way, the same way you would to a 30-year-old woman that you're discipling at Starbucks. You just say, we believe in one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and you keep driving that home. And it's, remember, we're a people of faith, right? Not a people of reason. You can't reason people into the kingdom of God. You, I mean, does the Trinity make sense? No. Can I look at anything in creation and say, God is like that? One God eternally existing in three persons. 
No. And we'll get to analogies and stuff next week in the week, sometime in the weeks after. You know, you've got water, steam, ice, you got the egg, you got the apple. Okay. Lose all analogies and just say, this is what we believe. This is what God's word has said. There is one God eternally existing in three persons. Does it make sense? Absolutely not. But you know what else doesn't make sense? The eternal son of God becomes a little bitty baby in a womb, okay? And his life is threatened, right? And he grow, he, he's born, he cries, he has to wear a diaper and get his diapers changed. He has to nurse at his mother's breast, right? He grows up, right? And lives this life and then goes and dies a death on a cross. And God raises him from the dead and then he ascends in a real body up into heaven. They watch him go into the clouds and he's going to come again. Does that make sense? No, but I believe it. I believe it because we're a people of faith. And so, yeah, can you, uh, and so when, you, when you're dealing with little kids, I think you do your best to just come alongside and say, okay, you know, we, this is what God's word says. And yeah, we don't fully understand it, but we believe it. Do we want to correct them every single time? They say something like if you have a Bible lesson and you're like, okay, Acts chapter two, what did we talk about? Who came down at Pentecost? You know some kid is going to raise his hand and say, Jesus. I mean, okay, in that moment you might say, well, it's the Holy Spirit. But, I mean, do we want to always stop a kid in the middle of their prayer and say, that wasn't a correct prayer? (laughs) You know, no, because we do it. But I hear adults say it. I hear adults pray, thank you, Father, for dying on the cross for our sins. That's That's modalism. But do we want to go alongside everybody every single time? No. If you hear someone do it often enough, I think you want to love them and say, hey. But, so I think we can go alongside them. But the best thing I've found is just teach this and kids will embrace it and it becomes a part of them. Do they fully understand it? No, but I don't fully understand it completely. But I'm a person of faith. I don't know exactly how to word this, but is this, is this part of the reason that Orthodox Jews believe in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. They don't believe in Jesus. Yeah, they're just looking at the Old Testament exclusively. Exclusively, they would... but it doesn't have anything to do with these. No, no, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say any of this. It's just that they're all similar in that they're all stressing the oneness of God, oneness. which Jewish people would. They would ex- ex- uh, express, what were we saying? They would, they would express their belief in the oneness of Yahweh. Of God, so they say God is one. They say Jesus is not the Messiah. Right. The New Testament is, you know, a bunch of people, uh, Jewish people, who then got a bunch of Gentiles together and kind of hijacked everything and took off with it. They would say no. They're stressing the oneness of God, but they wouldn't be behind any of this. Yeah. Okay. The only link there and similarity is that they're just stressing that there's one God. They would not say He's eternally existing in three persons at all. Okay, so I'm trying to figure out where I left off. Um, well, God is first uh, a lover, fundamentally, foundationally. He's not even a creator and ruler first, because he's been loving before he even created anything. And uh, Praxius would have stressed he's, he's the creator, he's the ruler first as one. Uh, but God is not primarily a lawgiver He's not one primarily who barks out a bunch of rules. He's fundamentally a father living his son in the spirit, Trinitarian in nature. If you view God first and foremost as a lawgiver, then that's how you relate to him. If you view God only as this guy who's barking out these rules, how is that going to affect your life? Well, if you're like me, you don't measure up all the time, do you? And so therefore, you begin to think, well, God doesn't like me he's surely he's fed up with me by now because if he's the rule giver and is always barking out rules and i'm not measuring up certainly he must be fed up with me by now you'll always be trying to keep the rules in order to please him in order to get his favor which you already have in christ you'll always be trying hard to make sure you stay in line instead of enjoying him And seeing God this way will change everything about your Christian life. Remember, 
The most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because that will determine every dimension of your life. What you think of God will determine every dimension of your life. As I mentioned, the nation of Israel, this is, we're in 1 Kings, this is why they, and that's who 1 Kings and 2 Kings is written to, this is why the nation of Israel went into exile. They viewed God differently than he had revealed himself through his word. And so they began worshiping other gods like Baal and Asherah. And they thought they could work, worship idols alongside Yahweh. And that then determined every dimension of their life. And it's the same for us too. If we get God wrong, everything falls apart, doesn't it? If we get the doctrine of God wrong, everything falls apart. And that's why I want to teach you in this class and on Sunday morning about who God is. It is on pastors to teach their congregations who God is. That is more important than seven life tips for reaching your neighbor or some practical application about this. What's more important than anything and that will then help you relate to your neighbor is understanding who God is and who has revealed himself to be in his word. So modalism is still alive and well today. Does anyone know what denomination still believes in modalism? What's that? Catholics. Catholics? No, I think no. They I, Mormons. Mormons, but I think they believe in many gods, though, right? They don't it's, believe in the Trinity, though. And Christ himself. Well, I argue with somebody. Yeah. Up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's the United Pentecostals, or they're, they're called Oneness Pentecostals. Why are they called Oneness Pentecostals? Because they believe in one God. They don't believe in the Trinity. They flat out deny the Trinity. They believe sometimes the one God is the Father. Sometimes he's the Son. Sometimes he is the Spirit. There's a very popular modalistic teacher today. Have you heard of T.D. Jakes? He's on TV. Uh, he, is, he tried to say he recanted several years ago, but he has. I just checked his website again. He says, we believe in one God and three manifestations. That's the word they use. God is manifesting himself as either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit whenever he's doing something. So several years ago, I had to do a funeral with someone at our church who had passed away and had grown up a oneness Pentecostal. And so they said, we want you and him to do the funeral. And so I just Googled the guy who, like, who am I doing the funeral with? And I'm like, oh my goodness, oneness Pentecostal. This is going to be interesting. Now, when he preached and prayed, he sounded just like a normal person. He mentioned the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But I knew, as I was sitting there on the stage with him, I knew, you don't believe in the God of the Bible. So... That's always stuck in my head. Also because about a year after that, there was another funeral or a wedding I had to do. And, uh, and you know, I only wear a suit. I tell people, I either marry you or bury you and I'll wear a suit. So I had another funeral or a wedding to do and I pulled my suit out of the closet and reached inside. And the family had given me a check or probably a couple hundred dollars for doing the funeral. And it's like a year later and opened up. It's like, oh my goodness, I never cashed this thing. <laughs> so I, I blame that on that modalistic. <laughs> it's all because I was so concerned about making sure I was being Trinitarian as I preached in this funeral that I totally forgot I left a check on the inside of my coat. United Pentecostals are sadly deceived. Does that mean that there could be someone in their church who's just in error and doesn't understand? Absolutely. You know. But when confronted with the truth of God's word, if they say, I don't believe that, then I would say, well, I don't know where, where you're at here. But as a denomination, um, they worship a really a Mrs. Doubtfire kind of God who's always manifesting himself in different ways. So here's the bottom line. To be a Christian, you have to be able to count to three. You have to be able to count to three in order to be a Christian. Is there one God? Yes. But he exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So counting to one is not enough. You have to be able to count to three. Here's what our doctrinal statement says about the Trinity. We believe that there is one living and true God eternally existing in three persons. That these are equal in every divine perfection and that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, 
providence, and redemption. Okay? So to be a member of this church, you have to believe this. You have to be able to count to three to be a member of this church. Now, a couple of things in our statement that we're going to see in a few weeks, uh, in the next few weeks. The phrase eternally existing. This problem of misunderstanding is not going to go away. As we head into the fourth century, the eternality of Jesus is going to be debated in churches throughout uh, the Roman Empire and down into uh, uh, Egypt even. The eternality of Jesus, did he always exist or did God create him? That's going to become a hot button issue as well as Jesus being equal with God. Is he equal in every divine perfection, as our statement of faith says, is he equal of worship? Is he equal of praise and honor? Yes. But there's going to be a heretic who becomes really popular at the beginning of the 4th century. He's a Bible uh, teacher in Alexandria, Egypt, and he's going to raise some eyebrows. He's going to become very, very popular. He actually starts writing a bunch of worship songs that really catch on, and everybody's singing them. But as they start coming into the church, people are like, hmm, I don't know if that lyric is right. So we'll talk about him next time over the next few weeks as we make our way to some of the councils in church history like the council at Nicaea. So any other comments or questions? Okay, so keep teaching the Trinity. Uh, even to kids, even to youth group, call people to believe it because we're a people of faith. And uh, keep digging into the word and asking God to open your eyes so that you can see who he is and how he's revealed himself to be. Does it all make sense? No, right? There, there's, does Jesus being uh, fully God and fully man and those two natures united together in one person, does that make sense? We'll talk about that uh, probably a month or two down the road. You think about this. Jesus, as he's inside Mary's belly, squirming and kicking around as she eats something spicy. And baby Jesus is in there kicking and squirming around. At the same time, he knows everything that will ever be. And yet at the same time, he also knows nothing because he's just being formed. Right? That'll, make, that'll give you a headache, won't it? Yeah. Okay? At the same time, Jesus, he knows everything and yet he's a five-year-old boy or a 12-year-old boy at the temple and he's talking with the religious leaders and asking them questions so that he can grow in grace and knowledge and yet as the eternal son of God he knows everything he knew that I would be talking about him at 6 54 on February 9th, 2020. He knew that as a 12-year-old boy talking in the temple, and yet at the same time, he also had to grow in knowledge and understanding. So if the Trinity makes your brain hurt, talk about the incarnation of Jesus as well. It will too. But remember, we're a people of faith. We believe it because this is what God's Word says. All right, let me pray first. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We don't understand everything, uh, but we believe. And sometimes we don't believe, so help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, see you guys next week.